0: A section we have just to gossip about everyone. So you'll find something you like here. And you'll practice your Spanish. The cleanest Spanish you'll find, we promise. And if you already hablas español, vamos a ser tus tus nuevas amigas. We'll be your friends for the non-spanish speakers. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Hosted by guest, and available to all audio platforms.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Synth 71 podcast. We're a little bit like London buses at the moment. You wait a long time for one and then two turn up in quick succession. My name's Stuart. I'm the founder of the website. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Deborah Dilworth. Deborah has many roles within the game. Most notably, she's the head of the women's football at the Football Supporters Association and head coach at Pilkington FC Women. It seems appropriate that we're recording on International Women's Day a day in which we celebrate the achievements of female role models and for me Deborah is definitely a role model of mine. Her work in elevating the women's game and those involved in it is something that should definitely be celebrated. So thank you for taking the time to join us Deborah. Uh, I hope that you're well.
0: I'm good thank you, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, It's a pleasure, it's a pleasure. So if we could just set the scene, could you tell us a little bit about your early introductions to football?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, I am a massive Preston North End fan, uh, influenced by my dad and uh, one of my brothers, Ian. So often I would go off to the away games with um, my dad and my brother to, to support. Uh, so I really, that was kind of my introduction into football, I suppose, um, is just is being a supporter. Um, And then I started to play just at primary school, kicking around, as usual story for a lot of uh, women, was kicking around the uh, playground with the boys, Um, didn't really do any structured football, uh, but I was quite a sporty kid. And then I uh, joined more structured football and joined a football team when I was in secondary school. So, and that was just off the back of my friend saying, hey, you know, you're coming around to my house, I need to go to football training. Do you want to come with me or do you want to stay at my house? And I was like, sure, I'll come with you. So um, so from there, I sort of was in a more structured setting for um, ever since then, basically.
1: And was that a women's team or a girls' team that you started playing with?:
0: Yeah, so it was a, um, a girls' under 12s team. It must have been at the time. They'd already sort of been um, together for a couple of years. They'd been playing together. so I was kind of always two years behind the main group of girls that were playing. Um, and I think that did impact sort of my journey into football and my view on how I played and those kind of things. I probably had all the work ethic, but because I was always sort of two years behind and we were, you know, had an hour session every week. Um, I think it was hard to like get up to speed uh, back back in the day. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it was a girls section and it was kind of like forward thinking for the time that it was as well, I suppose.
1: And what position did you play?
0: well I played uh, right back or right wing um absolutely I, I love running I still love running around so um right and right and left back I did have a stint in goal um if we were desperate for a, a goalie um don't think that's my favorite position and it still doesn't is <laughs> in my favorite position but I'll give it a bash if needed um and then yeah so mainly along the right um but I did have a go on the left as well at some some points but Again, you know, it's been much more developmental in the sense of using both feet. Whereas when I first started to play, it was kind of like, which one's your weaker foot? Um, ignore that. And that's for you're standing on. And then you go and kick with the, the your most preferred foot. So um, if I could have had my opportunity now, I, I would have loved to have been able to um, experience developing both feet, using both feet.
1: Yeah, um, I'm sure regular listeners will know that I'm also a coach within... Uh, money fields, um, under-18s girls, and it's really hit home. This group of girls is definitely the most talented group that I've had the pleasure of coaching, and you look at their ability to control the ball and dictate where it's going to go. It's it's another level, and it does make you think that, actually, why have grassroots coaches never really focused on ball mastery and ball skills?
0: Yep. And also, just like having being able to have a ball at your feet most of the most of the time. Um, so I think it's yeah, it's kind of been interesting to sort of see how coach education has, has turned or pivoted in the last ten years or so to try to really put a, a stress on ball manipulation and being comfortable and, on the ball and dribbling with the ball and stuff like that. So um, it's, it's been a, it's been good to see.
1: Well, I know that I did, um, what was the initial qualification I did? Probably going back 20, 25 years ago now. I think the first badge that you would get as a coach would be the junior team badge. And the difference between that and the level one course that I did as a refresher a couple of years ago is, is chalk and cheese. It, I remember it being, it was just straight, well, i pass to someone, run to a space, pass to somebody else where now it it encourages you to think for yourself. They don't just hand you a list of drills, exercises and games. They encourage you to think, like, what what do you want to get out of it? And anything could be appropriate. It it doesn't matter as long as you stick to the main principles of a game, um, that there are a certain level of rules and boundaries and there can be a winner and a loser, then you can do anything. And I know when we had our opportunities as coaches... We had a real variety in things. Some people would effectively do sort of like netball games, um, maybe an end zone. Someone I think uh, put together a, a couple of goals and did um, like a little bit of football tennis. And where some people had a little bit more structured um, games that you would imagine in a typical football session. Um, but it, it, it definitely makes it a big difference. The uh, the challenge for me is um, trying to get on uh, further courses at the moment. It seems, that seems to be a bit of a bottleneck, and maybe that's something that we might touch on later on. But um, at what point did you decide that you wanted to move into coaching? Because for me, it was a quite easy, easy decision um, because I wasn't particularly good. I'm very much the uh, the person they talk about when they say those who can do, those who can't teach. So um, but, well, what was it for you?
0: So I don't know, really. I, I kind of not fell into it, but I think I always really enjoyed taking on a leadership role. Um, and I had i feel like my journey playing football was quite difficult so you know one of my coaches in, uh, when i was a junior was was great you know really helped me like gave me individual instruction and whatnot wasn't the lead coach so then the lead coach i really felt what was focused more on winning than development so for anybody like me that was already starting 2 years behind that was quite difficult to get on board with because i i didn't i would wasn't able to have the self um confidence to sort of push through uh making mistakes so as soon as I made a mistake I sort of like drowned in it and then I made 10 15 more in a row so that was kind of difficult and I sort of left feeling oh I love this sport but I don't understand you know like I come and I give the the 100% work ethic every week but yeah I'm not getting picked and I you know I'm being told that I'm not match fit but then I was never really given a chance to play matches and I remember having su- some experiences, you know, where I'd be, I'd be c- come on as a, a substitute with a minute to go, you know, which doesn't help anybody. So I left there and I kind of felt a little bit like I had a difficult relationship with playing football. Absolutely loved supporting Preston North and loved going to the games with my dad and my brother. But just this side of things, it was a bit of a struggle. I then went to university, started playing three or four times a week, got better But again, I was still probably further behind than all my colleagues. Didn't feel like a good uh, kind of set up potentially at university on on, on some layers. So when I got to the third year, you know, me and the captain, um, I was voted in as president. And that was kind of then where I started to see potential opportunities to coach. But presidency meant sort of doing a lot of the administration rather than the coaching. So there was a a few opportunities where I delivered sessions, but not in not how I would deliver them now. Um, And then I happened upon, I I can't remember how I was introduced to him, somebody that works in the States and like sends soccer coaches over to the United States. He's uh, contacted me and is like, hey, you know, just want to come in and give a presentation to you all about soccer coaching in the States. And I was like, sure. So that was one of my jobs is to provide opportunities to players. He came in delivered the opportunity. Nobody else picked up on it. And then I didn't have a coaching badge at that point, but I was really interested in going after I graduated to have this experience coaching. And uh, so I, I messaged him about a month or so afterwards and was like, would you be interested if I came over to coach? I managed to get onto the programme and it man, it was a big, steep learning curve into coaching. So I was on the grass for three hours every day three to six hours I was coaching tiny kids um, often the women coaches at the time would be put with the tight the the group and um, the sort of four to six fun in the sun group as they were called um, I think a number of the male coaches felt like that was below them uh, so the women would often get put on that but it was actually a really good learning opportunity for me because I was able to put into practice very quickly like how to captivate that audience how to captivate four to six-year-olds within a big soccer camp so it was from there, really, I then started to really like plough more time and investment into my coaching. Um, I came back home, um, having traveled a little bit, and then went into my level two. So I didn't technically get my level one, but I had enough on field experience to then be able to go and do my level two, which was, yeah, it just was kind of a bit of a crazy experience how I fell into it. Um, But I suppose I'd always done things like that, you know, like, led different areas. It just wasn't necessarily on the football field.
1: It's addictive, isn't it? It's
0: Coach, addictive, yeah.
1: <laughs> it Definitely. Like, I know that I used to have uh, an ex-partner of mine that a I used to be a season ticket holder at Man United for my sins. And she would um, she'd find it strange when I talk about Man United and say, we... And I remember one time she kind of confronted me on it and I was about to do the whole, as you can imagine, oh, you just don't get it. And actually she went, no, 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 no. Let me let me, let me, me caveat that. You do so much coaching with these kids. Surely they are we and they're the ones that you get more out of. And actually it, it really did get me thinking because it stuck with me quite a lot today. If Man United got relegated tomorrow but my football team won the league, I wouldn't be bothered whatsoever, which probably times it quite well because at the weekend, my Moneyfields team won 6-0. We put us on course to... uh, We're competing to win the league. And um, Man United lost 7-0 to Liverpool. I cue all the text messages from Liverpool fans. Oh, just checking in on you. Genuinely, couldn't give them monkeys. If Man United had won, brilliant. It would have been a high for my Sunday. But I was still coasting on the high for my Saturday where the team that I'm more of a stakeholder in actually one and and I think my ex was right, actually, with coaching, you do get more out of it you do they're your kids, they're your group, you're fiercely loyal to them, you want to make sure that they're they're all under your umbrella and they're all learning and it's you touched on the perfect example with your own background, where your footballing age might have been a little bit behind other people's that's the challenge of a coach like you or me now to think, right what can I do to include Deborah? help her progress but without that that still challenges those that might further along in their journey
0: for sure and that's
1: what makes coaching so much fun
0: well and but and also it's just like you know I I have respect for the coaches just for even running a a women's or girls team back then because actually it was like you know one of the hardest things to do I think you know there's so many barriers and there's still loads of barriers now for me as a coach even in this current climate but uh, you know, and also it's you can't please everybody. And there's so many challenges to coaching. And in one respect, their lead coach was a very successful coach. It was a winning team. You know, if, if that was his coaching philosophy, yeah, that, that would have it would be framed in that way now. And, you know, he wanted to win, etc. Then he did a really good job um, and loads of players enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, I suppose I could just never deal with the what felt like unfairness to sort of like really train hard, but then kind of not be given the chance. Uh, but then equally, some of that I have to take. That was my internal voice. Um, so, you know, but as a coach now, it's one of the hardest jobs to, to sort of set everybody on an even keel. There's always someone that kind of sees it in a slightly different perspective or thinks that they're being slightly unfairly treated or whatever it is. Um so it's it's a balancing act, really.
1: And I think that there are t- challenges with coaching men and women. One of the things that I've learned is actually you do need to be a little bit more emotionally aware when te- coaching women, um, purely because a lot of it, from my personal experience, a lot of male coaches I've coached with within the female sector, they take it for granted, everything else that's happening outside in the, the rest of their lives and um, we t- typically i find that boys that i've coached will eat sleep dream football um when they're not when they're not actually at school all they want to do is be kicking a ball around or if it's too dark and there's no light they'll be sticking on fifa where i've, I've learned that a lot of the the girls that i'd coach there's there's more there's more to them. Football is something that they enjoy, but there's also they've also got so much more in and around them. And I found that with with quite a few of the girls, it's they suffer with self confidence. Even the stronger players, who you would think, oh, actually they're they're really good. Well, they might be confident about taking a shot in front of goal, but actually, because of society, they might be going through body confidence issues. Um, they might be going through confident. different different stages of their um, puberty so their emotional learning is a different level to the boys and it's definitely, coaching girls has challenged me more because they won't just run through a brick wall for me, they want to know why Hmm. I can't just do, I can't just find oh there's a group of lads down the park if I'm coaching them I can turn around and say right do this, do that because they will um, they'll do what you say The girls, I want to know, why am I doing that? What's the impact of that? And that has been brilliant for me. It's challenged me. And I've definitely got more out of it. And I think because I've worked hard to meet their needs, it it certainly helped with me building a rapport um, with those players. And it's definitely in the... I coached boys football for about 17 years. And I think in three years of coaching women and girls, I learned more about being a coach than I did in all of that time prior.
0: I think it's an interesting point actually though and this is where I've always been quite adamant ever since I started ever since I left to then go to the work in the states that coaching boys and girls and um, men and women was was as important so it's you know because I think there was a tendency to go oh you're a woman so you're going to go over into the women and girls section and I was like no actually men and boys need to see women coaching them as well and And also it would give them a slightly different experience as as well because of the way that society is set up. So the emotional support that potentially a a a coach's woman could give a men's team is slightly different potentially than a man for, for varying different reasons. So I always kind of think it's interesting as well why there aren't more women coaching the men's game. And I still think there's this sort of protection of status quo of, oh, you know, well men don't don't need that or don't want that when actually there's been quite a lot of there's quite a lot of um uh I was going to say research but there's quite a lot of uh, opinions around like it being important and being emotionally intelligent emotionally involved and aware so that's beneficial for men's and boys teams as well so um but yeah co- coaching women and girls is amazing it's it's an amazing privilege to be able to for, for me, from a Pilks perspective, to be able to sort of showcase the women as role models and sort of have our junior girls come and be a part of match day and sit with us on the bench or whatever, however we conduct that. Um, and it do, it is different, but it's really rewarding, as you've just said. Um, but I do think there should be, you know, and there's going to start to be more uh, coaches who are women that are coming up in the men's game, but rightly so. Because men will benefit from that, boys will benefit from that.
1: Definitely. In, in the last episode that anyone can go back to and, and find quite easily, I spoke to Aaron Smith, who is the manager of Southampton Women in the fourth tier. And he recalls his very first session where he, with his background in men's football, he's used to the hairdryer treatment at half time. His first game with Southampton Women Reserves, he dished that out. But one of the more experienced players had to pull him aside afterwards and just said, you cannot speak to women like that. And that wasn't from a a power perspective, an abuse perspective. It's more just you won't succeed if you try and shout at these players and try and motivate them in that way. Um, Not saying that all women, female players need an arm around them, but he identified quite quickly that actually... He needed to be more measured, more informative in everything that he communicated, and actually might want to raise your voice a little bit, but actually you won 't ever really achieve anything by just by shouting at players
0: i don 't know how successful that is in the men 's game though either. how much respect really people do get it's just sort of the thing that's done or the thing that's perceived to be done but i, I don 't really know if you asked male players like how they want to be spoken to i 'm not really sure anybody wants to be screamed at um So it's kind of interesting. It's like an old school mechanism to get your point across. I I don't understand that. I don't agree with it because I kind of think there's better ways. You know, if you're just screaming at somebody all the time, realistically, how much are they going to be listening to you anyway? And then when you do have a really important point, you've kind of turned them off. Um, But yeah, I'd almost be interested to sort of see like actually how whether that is conducive or male players are less bothered by it. Um, but I do think the communication piece is interesting. And this is a game where coach education has become more reflexive and, you know, you're encouraged a lot more to think about these things and think about like old habits. And then I was a coach mentor for, uh, from about 2017 to just before COVID or just as COVID hit. And you, it's, it's hard being a coach because sometimes you do cling on to things that you have seen because it provides you a bit of comfort and you know you're dealing with parents and questions and the kids and troubling behavior sometimes difficult behavior and all these things so you you do you can sort of lean on and start to um, form habits on things that you had as a coach you had as a player to help you as a coach but this more reflective way of doing it is going okay well actually why am I doing this? What is the reason for, for this? So if I'm giving people the hairdryer treatment, what am I actually trying to achieve by doing that? I think like more and more coaches hopefully do start to reflect on those behaviours um, and actually what they're trying to achieve um as they go as they go through I know that I've had this conversation I've just been recently um doing my b license I'm you know nearly there on on the course but there was conversations around sort of like the men and women's game and sort of my approach that I presented as my snapshot to to how I coach and then how that could potentially fit in the men's game and one of the coaches said to me oh would you ever coach in the men's game I was like I'd love to but they were like, do you think you'd survive in it? And I was like, well, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because um, actually, yeah, it's just about the tone you set. Um, but maybe that's to be seen, I suppose. You, I'll, I'll, you'll have me on in like five years and I'll uh, be crying because I've not survived in a men's team, maybe, I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I guess it's uh, that's the thing. From As a female going into any male-dominated industry, be it work or sport or leisure... Sadly, you're going to end up having to work harder to get the respect, but the respect will be earned by those that are capable of it. Mm. And um, yeah, I'm I'm sure that you'd be able to smash it wherever you ended up. But we've obviously talked about coaching a little bit, but let's um, let's focus on the team that you're coaching a little bit and um, give them a little bit of uh, attention. So uh, Pilkington women, so for those who might not be aware, could you tell us a little bit about the club, such as uh, where they're located, I suppose, first of all?
0: Yeah, so they are located in St. Helens. Um, They the club originated sort of with a connection with Pilkington Glass, which is uh, what a lot of people associate the club with. Um, And we compete in Tier 7, Division 1 of the the local um, Liverpool league. Um, So that's uh, that's, um, the next step up is kind of where we'd be aiming to go um, after a few seasons in Division 1.
1: And how's the season been going?
0: Good, good. So I am. I'm proud of the group of players. Uh, you know, we train once a week. We train for about an hour and a half. But they are a great group of women. Um, really dedicated. You know, some of the players are actually playing university football as well as coming to me. Um, we have, as always, we all. You know, there, there's sometimes parts of the season where which is like trying to find your balance a little bit more and um, we had hoped to get a little bit further in the FA Cup this season uh, lost on penalties but the game was terrific Um since January so since the turn of the year I think we've lost one game um, and then we've we just drew, drew against our local rivals FC St Helens so in a in a um, game that's dubbed El Glasico for both the men <laughs> and the women which whoever came up with that I love that name um, but so you know we've we've done we've done well um scored more goals this season, so that was the name that that I wanted to sort of work with the forwards about so I think generally speaking, my whole uh focus is developing them as people as well as players so the season matters results matter we are a football team, but ultimately like I want a group of women that are healthy, happy, and feel supported in their environment and get the opportunity to experience different things so on that level, I think that we've done, we've done that, or we're doing that.
1: Everything I've been following, it seems to be uh, a real up-and-coming club. You've um, been working with Hannah and James, who are two fantastic photographers that we've collaborated with since 71. Could you tell me a little bit about the impact they have as photographers and how they make the club more visible and raise awareness of not only the club, but women's football in general?
0: Oh, my goodness, these two. And we're lucky to work with another um, uh, photographer called Jess who's who's sort of done some of our photography as well. So between the three of them, the, their sheer, like, creativity, their willingness to volunteer um, and give up their Sundays or their Wednesdays how however, however they're supporting us is fantastic, all to create visibility for the women's game um, and for players. The players absolutely love them. They love sort of seeing the pictures afterwards and um, there's usually somebody that's got a funny expression on their face, so that always causes amusement. Uh, sadly, that's me sometimes. Um, I don't I don't know what I'm thinking when I look at these pictures. I uh, I wonder what I was thinking at the time they were taken. But Hannah and Hannah and Hannah's creativity in terms of videography and sort of social media presence, you know, she's been a game changer for us. It, incredibly talented human who is so dedicated. Um so dedicated to us. Um, and she she plays for another club that I coach at, which is Rainford, Lion- Rainford Athletic Lionesses. Um, so I, that was actually how I got to know her originally. Um, but she's just a fantastic person. And she, her eye for creative shots or creative ideas, um, I love working with her. James is somebody that's just come on this season, um, approached us, we got introduced and you know, he's a firefighter by day and then an awesome photographer by Sundays. And, um, yeah, it's just amazing. To, it's amazing. Without them, we wouldn't be as visible without their creativity. We wouldn't be as memorable. Um, and I, I genuinely don't know how to thank them like, or I thank them enough to be honest for the time that they give to us. They're so important.
1: Yeah, they're definite unsung heroes. Um, when I said that increasing visibility, it, it's literally impossible to do without talented people like themselves because it, it, A, it's not easy. B, it's not cheap. To get the sort of kit that provides the photos that, that they're producing are thousands of pounds. And for them to be giving up their time, it's it's, it's, it's a game-changing, ultimately. And it's... I certainly... Like to think that most clubs realise that they're absolutely worth their weight in gold. These photographers and make sure that they're kitted out with a nice warm jumper for a start and uh, a, a cup of tea. I know at Moneyfields, if we've ever got a photographer there, it's yeah, it's almost making sure that you know their their drinks order before they even arrive.
0: Yeah. It's the simple things as well. And I think this is where I benefit from my, my day job, because, you know, working with volunteers, I understand, I understand that. And I am also a volunteer as well. And I think about how I I might like to be treated. So, you know, we've got them all, all the volunteers in our support team. So this season, I've only been with Pilks for about a season and a half. So this season, we set up a, a support team to try to work with the one of the local universities to see if we could get a sports psychologist, we tried to We've working with the strength and conditioning coach, uh, goalkeeping coach, assistant or co-coach, sorry. Um, and then the, the photographers and the social media. So like all of them have jackets so that they feel part of the team. Um, we try to like make sure that they're looked after as best as possible. Because honestly, they are so vital, like the whole support team. And we, we at our level are really lucky that people are investing time um, and, and energy into us like that. So um You know, and also what I love about Hannah and James is particularly and you will see, unfortunately, I can't explain too much about this because of the timing of it. But um, later on tonight, we're doing an event to celebrate International Women's Day. It's an idea that I had sat in my head for most of last season. And I said when James joined us so that I knew I had have a video person and a photographer, I said to both of them, what do you think about this idea? Um, And I want to do this, this, this is kind of a creative photo shoot. Both of them said yes, straight away. And we've worked together to create these like cool images and sort of videos around women and girls football um, at uh, an iconic location in St. Helens. Um, So that's going to be released tonight. We're going to have an event to celebrate it, but it's the openness to do that. You know, they've given up their Saturday and then they've come with us on the Sunday. That's a lot of time and energy that they've given to us. And honestly, that, that just helps me because it helps the visibility of women's football.
1: Definitely. And um, if anyone's listening to this after the event, which given that we're talking uh, at 3.30pm on International Women's Day, you're most likely to be, um, you can find out more about Pilkington um, on social media just by searching Pilkington FC Women or the direct username is Pilks FC Women. Um, so I touched on at the beginning that you wear many hats within the game. So I wondered if you could tell me more about your role within the Football Supporters Association. I believe it's the the, the head of women's football. So what is that?
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm the head of women's football for the Football Supporters Association, which means I look after all of the international and domestic um work for the for the women's game it's a it's a quite a new network uh we only started in 2019 and we were only formally constituted in uh, 2020 i think it was at the agm um so we're we're, we're quite new really in terms of uh, networks in comparison to the premier league the efl or uh, the other couple of networks that we've got within the organization so i um Was starting to. I was the EFL network manager for 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 the Football Supporters Association, but felt that we were missing the women's game support. So I started to do that work on on top of the EFL work, Um, and then we roll on to today, where we've now got a network with just under fifty member groups, and I am now the head of women's football for the organisation.
1: So within the women's game network you've obviously created an affiliation and work collaboratively with local fan groups. So what were the initial challenges you faced when setting up this network when it was just you?
0: Yeah, so uh, I think there was a couple of different challenges. I think getting recognition of the work being necessary and important for the women's game. So I always kind of find it interesting and um, other people will have have views on this as well. You know, this kind of Mistake or um, untruth about the women's game never having supporters and there never being supporters in the women's game because actually that's completely inaccurate. And if you look across the history books, there's been actually been quite a lot of supporters in the women's game. It's just around the same time as the ban, supporters will have been stopped from kind of actively participating in the game in a support from a supporter perspective. So I think it was just, it was getting recognition across the board that this was a really important piece of work and supporters in the women's game deserved the same level of support i also um it was just getting getting the vision out i suppose so i used the 2019 world cup to to run a fans embassy service a service that had been delivered to the men's game for m- many years to see if there was traction domestically to try to set up a network we spoke to absolutely loads of people out in France um, and it it seemed that people were interested in this idea uh, but it was getting the vision out and then trying to either work with supporters groups that are already set up because there were some and I think this is where it gets a little bit lost with the with the work that I do there's always been some sort of supporter activism in the women's game it's just the way that the way that we've done it or our work is more structured So it's not trying to replace stuff that's happened or say that that stuff has never happened or there hasn't been sort of pushed back by supporters to some degree. It's just we're doing it in a slightly more structured way. Um, And I think that uh, it's it's trying to then uh, pull more groups or set more groups up or encourage more groups, which we've been able to do over the last couple of years and give those groups the support and the development that they need in order to set up a thriving supporters network and a supporters group locally. So, and then, you know, you've got on top of that, trying to trying to shape all of that and then try to sort of build relationships with other stakeholders in the game. Because if you don't have quite the right structure or you're just building that, sometimes it doesn't look as, it's not as easy to set the other stuff up.
1: For anyone that's listening that might be interested in, in joining an existing fans network or creating a new one for their club what support is offered to them
0: an abundance really and it's shaped and bespoke to the supporters group so some supporters groups come and they say um they under they know that they want to have a constitution they know they want to want to be structured in a certain way so they've come and they've said we've got all this we just would like a little bit of support in terms of joining the network and being put in contact with other people some supporters groups or supporters come and say really don't think there's anything locally i want to set something up but how do i I do it so i would talk them through they would have direct contact with me and i would talk them through okay what kind of supporters group would you like to be would you like to be a more formal structured one would you like to be an atmosphere group would you like to focus on um community projects if there's lots of different you know are you more of a website or uh, covering football visually in some way. So there's lots of different types of supporters groups. And we really try to bespoke the advice depending on where the supporters are and where they're coming to us from. The other thing that we do as well is we try to work with the clubs and make sure that the clubs feel supported as well, because some clubs don't necessarily know where to start. They feel like they want a supporters group. They see the benefit of it. and They don't feel like fans maybe are activating in the same way or fans know about our women's game network. And so we would work with clubs as well, not to have a club led supporters group, but just to start something up that's beneficial for both the supporters and the clubs. Um, we offer sort of free legal advice, if you remember, so there's a, a, a member benefit that you can have a half an hour le- free legal advice, just being exposed to lots of different supporters groups across the country, I think is a big benefit. And, the feedback that I hear from our network meetings is that one is one of the favorite things that our current support members like is the access to sort of listening to different opinions and sort of understanding where different people are heading. There's access to funding um, for different projects. You can get involved in national projects Um, now because we've got um, fan engagement with the, the FA you can get involved in those meetings. There's training and development opportunities. So there's really is quite a lot, um, and you know, like, you get to talk to awesome people like you as well. So, uh... <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um,
1: for anyone that doesn't know, we are um, part a member of this. So don't think when we're talking about supporters, it doesn't have to be a traditional fan on the terrace. If you're supporting the women's game, uh, perhaps you wanted to. We, we touched on photographers earlier. If we've got any photographers, I think actually I'd like to start up a network of. Women's football photographers. Um, you may run a website similar to Since Seventy One. Um, you might be more sort of video content, but if you're interested, then we definitely encourage you, you to get in contact. Um, we'll obviously make sure that Deb shares her uh, social media handles at the end, so you can uh, you can get in contact. Otherwise, you can just um, simply Google Football Supporters Association. But um, so going back to that, is there any particular criteria that must be met in order for a fan group to join? And are we looking, does it need to be just two people at the minimum or is there, how does it work?
0: No, so um, so you can join as an individual member to the FSA and also just to say membership is actually free. Um, so you can join as an individual member. That doesn't necessarily mean you get onto the network, but you would then start to keep be on the loop of our comms from our uh, central comms team, and then you, to, to be a group, you're even a, an associate or an affiliate. So one is slightly higher than the other in terms of the expectations of the organisation would be if you're an affiliate, you have accounts, you have a constitution, you have a certain side policies that make sure that you run. Because at the end of the day, this, the running and the governance of the supporters group is really important because if you as a supporters group is trying to hold somebody to account, so for example, your club, you have to make sure that you're running in a, in a good and thorough way. Um, but so, yeah, you would have to, at that higher level, have these kind of um, things. As an associate, I've started a lot of groups or helped start a lot of groups. And Liverpool always come to mind here. Joe from Liverpool supporters group was one person. She set up a Twitter handle. She now has a committee of 10 people. So you can start like that. And this is where it's really important in the women's game not to feel overwhelmed like as if you have to have all that real kind of governance stuff straight away. You don't. You can start as a Twitter handle or a social media handle and sort of grow it from there and see where you want to go as a supporters group. Um, But the membership is free and I'd actively encourage as many people as possible to, if there's a supporters group at your club to try and join them or if there's not to set set one up or work with a couple of supporters to set one up.
1: Uh, What sort of impact has the group had on... The women's game as a whole.
0: I I think I'm so proud of the work that the supporters groups do locally. Like somebody said to me, someone said to me, "Oh, the FSA is important in the women's game," and I was like, "It's not necessarily the FSA; it's the local work that's being done." Um, you know, I can't do my job and, and without. Groups that are volunteering locally to sort of, you know, lobby their clubs for away travel or more communication or uh, better treatment of away fans, better experiences at home grounds. And I think actually there has been an impact on so many different levels across football. So even in terms of if you look at um, feedback, so continually feeding back to the club to say, you know, actually the supporters didn't like that or the supporters want to see this or whatnot, giving points of view and expressions to to help the club grow and develop their fan engagement, even to the point now where a couple of years ago, I don't really think there was much fan engagement from the clubs. Now we've seen groups that have signed memorandum of understandings with their supporters groups. We've got um, supporters group reps on fan advisory boards. We've got clubs that are meeting their fan groups every month. That's That's massive impact. And then from the community work that they do, a lot of them are fundraising or they're sponsoring local girls' teams or women's teams. Um they're kind to t- trying to affect their community. And I think this sometimes is where it gets a bit lost in the the women's going to the men's is, you know, there's often all, the men's club is a community asset, but so is the women's teams. They they are communities. There there is communities around them. Um So I feel like they've had a massive impact nationally as well, you know, to to get, I can't, I couldn't have gone to the FA without all these local supporters groups to say, actually, you should be talking to them. So, you know, even to have that level of engagement on a national level is so important. And that's, that's because of the work that they're doing locally.
1: Well, the group were obviously involved in the recent review undertaken by Tracy Crouch, and actually having it was, was it, I think it was, a, it was a, almost an hour with her where she had, took the time to listen to a lot of the concerns, which eventually led to the result being that there needs to be an independent review or a review independent of the men's game because some of the issues are unique to the women's game.
0: Yep, yeah. And we were heavily involved in that um, in terms of the prep, the sort of correspondence with the network, then the present presenting on the day of the panel, along with the other networks for the FSA, and we are involved in the Women's Game Review as well. We've submitted evidence that's been that's been helped, uh, been compiled by volunteers from our Women's Game Network and key experts from the industry who have supported our work. So they really have made we've made massive strides over the last couple of years, given how young we are as a network.
1: Definitely, definitely. What seems to be the single biggest issue that's negatively affecting fans at the moment?
0: Um, so, t- uh, broadcasting has been a, an issue. Um, so, having uh, well, broadcasting on a number of different levels, either with it being kickoff times and that being really difficult for fans. So, if it's a really early kickoff and you've got a north, south. Fixture, um you know, one set of fans is traveling. The you know, you can't necessarily travel sustainably, for example. So your coach uh, or like train travel, you you can't get access to. Um, so there's those those kind of things, and then also clashes with men's teams. So you know, supporters feeling that they have to make a choice. Um, sometimes that's led by money. Um, if you paid five hundred quid for your season ticket um, as opposed to five for for uh, your women's game ticket, are you, you know, supporters of being put in a really difficult position? Um, I think they're feeling valued as away fans. That's sort of starting to change now. And I think there's a lot more feedback being given, but that feeling like clubs want to have away fans and sort of to give them a good experience and to encourage them to come. Um, so, so there's a few different issues as well. And I still think actually being a genuine stakeholder of the game is probably still the perception of supporters is maybe a bit, more, a bit marketing-led sometimes. Um, not everywhere because we've seen some really good examples of genuine dialogue, but I think still there's this kind of perception is um, making sure that they understand fans actually do want to have a voice and we've got a golden opportunity in the women's game to ensure that fans are stakeholder um, and part of key decision-making.
1: Yeah, definitely. They're not just customers. I know that's something that we touched on in uh, a recent meeting where um, I believe it was Karen Carney was talking about football clubs as uh, as businesses. And I don't think that went down too well with some fans, but effectively I, I do believe she had a point. The differentiation between it is if that business considers fans to be Customers or, or stakeholders, and if it's the latter, then that can still be quite a positive thing. And if we do build that engagement, then that's absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been privy to many conversations online about the roles of fans on match days and their interaction with players. I, I wonder what your views were with regards to what as the expectation on fans with regards to meeting players after the match and the rise in these give-me-things signs that you see at games? Is it is it a concern of yours with regards to potentially player welfare?
0: I, I sit in the middle of this a little bit because I, I, I think it's really important for athletes that are women to feel like they're safe in the, their environment and for there not to be crazy expectations on... Those athletes that are not applied to uh, athletes that are men. So there is a sort of safeguarding piece, and also, you know, it, um, the interactions and stuff, and the expectations of sort of hugs or physical contact, or, you know, the amount of time that you might spend, the, the time that you don't spend. I think there's been players that have been criticized for sort of head down and sort of concentrating on get into the changing room or get into the bus or wherever they're going and then being called rude. I think there is um, you know, we've really got to sort of think about what what we want for this ties in with the review really, what we want for the women's game and for us for, for those athletes. Um I think this is where the supporters groups can really as well help um, sort of in terms of expectations or managing expectations. And, you know, but clubs and supporters groups need to work together to make sure that uh, people are happy because, you know, you want fans and you want people that are interested in the game and kind of interested in um, being part of match day and being fully immersive. I mean, I don't know about you, but one of the, the biggest sort of disappointments I feel about the men's game, and this is as a Preston fan, was that interaction? Is that interaction there really on match day with the players? Are they going straight into the, you know, they do, do a quick clap and then they walk down the tunnel? You know, how is that engaging? You know, does that engage the young kids that are like hand, holding out their hand for a high five for their idol? Not really. So there's a balance somewhere between the two of how it currently works in the men's game, but also the level of expectation we're sort of expecting from athletes in the women's game um but on the give me science stuff signs that I think uh it was our board member Chris Parris said recently you know like this is probably a phase that you know is it will go um and actually you know for now um it what's what is there a harm to it I don't know um you know but I don't I think there's a misunderstanding as to the abundance of equipment that women's players have I don't think I think people think that they have an abundance of equipment that they don't have, but that's more of an education piece rather than a. You know, is there anything too sinister in these signs? I'm I'm not sure.
1: Definitely, I kind of agree with you. I think there's certainly a balance, and it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I think the responsibility for policing this will lie with clubs. They're the ones that should be engaging with their players first and foremost, and if there's an. The players have a particular view, then actually the club should support them on that, whether that be um, chaperoned interaction with players or even just a blanket rule saying, no, we're not going to do it. You might find that a team like um, Manchester City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Man United, they might not have capacity because they've got more fans turning up to games. But certainly in the Championship and the National League, those are... Levels of the pyramid that are relying on fans. They're not making outside of the FA Cup, they're not bringing in any prize money. So, therefore, getting bums on seats to ground is really important. And you get bums on seats by building relationships with these fans and trying to make them stakeholders within the game. So, it's certainly, I think the clubs take the most responsibility about supporting their players. But I think at all levels now, clubs and coaches are much more aware of the expectations on player safety, and uh, well, that could be we could be talking about online safety as well. But we won't open that rabbit hole because um, we've already been talking for sort of near on an hour, as it were. I just wanted to touch upon something else that you're involved in, Free Lionesses. This is uh, a, a support network and a group that you run for the England women's team. Could you tell me a little bit more about it and? how the idea came about
0: yeah so i briefly mentioned earlier that i do some uh, international work or i cover international bits of the women's game within my role uh, the the organization has classically always ran fan embassy services for tournaments for for men's tournaments sorry so back in 2019 uh our we were a merged organization i was from the supporters direct side and then we had the football supporters federation that who we merged with so once we merged i was like right we need to do a fan embassy service for France 2019. One to see if we've got traction for a domestic network, but also just because it's really important, the supporters going out to France are supported. So Free Lionesses was born. It's from um, the the men's organisation is Free Lions, so Free Lionesses was born and uh, went out to France uh, to give out free supporters guides to create sort of a community meetup point, which we work with the FA on. Um, and that was uh, the community meetup point. Was really to try to either encourage lone travellers to come, or just supporters to come, collect their tickets, collect a supporters guide, and ask any questions. And also, if they had any problems, to come and see me. So, some of the things that I dealt with in France was uh, lost phones, uh, stolen passports, uh, multiple questions around transport, and just generally supporting the fans that were out there travelling. I also, I just recently actually heard a really beautiful story of a, a Scottish fan. So we we actually had lot. It wasn't just England fans, to be honest. In France, we had lots of different fans coming to us because I think we're the first service of that kind. Nobody else is really was really doing it. So we had a, Scot- a few Scottish fans come, and they made friends with some England fans. They're still fr- fans now, and I think one of them, what, the Scottish fan, attended the England fans' wedding recently. And then I started to get other pictures coming. in. Oh, we met in France 2019 at the bar that you were in. and that. So it's just, that's the whole point of it, is to create a community in and around supporting the lionesses and sort of to start to grow away travel. We, we are there to try to provide support, travel support, and generally ease people's uh, travel experience for supporting the lionesses. And, um, you know, we did the Euros, but it was a slightly different service because it was a home tournament. But we tried to promote women's football and promote women's football in local areas uh, and cover it cover it that way within the supporters guide rather than this is how you get to the stadium. Um, the only sort of bit we did about that around this tournament was working with our partner Pledge Ball to showcase what the sustainability was in and around the, the stadium and the area. Um, so it's really grown quite a lot over the last couple of years and we would hope to be doing something in and around the World Cup this year over in Australia and New Zealand
1: will you be going over yourself
0: it's a work in progress as it stands um, we're working on the supporters guide hoping to support we've been uh, representing supporters around you know travel packages uh, when tickets were released issue- official England sections so we we have been working with the FA and other stakeholders to represent and so far and people do come to free S's to check information so I would hope that we would have some sort of presence there.
1: It must be a very different challenge for you be it that it's halfway around the world and not you can't hop on the Eurostar.
0: Yeah yeah um, and it will be it will be interesting but and I think though this is where people potentially underestimate the women's game and say, oh, people won't travel. But actually, there are a number of people tra- people traveling. And so we need to be more organized. We need to give the- people support so that they can travel away. Like, why wouldn't we expect there to be the amount that goes to England men's games in the future for the England women? They're hugely successful, as has a- as Euro 22 just proven, and hopefully this World Cup this year. So we should be anticipating that more and more people will want to go and travel away with this team.
1: Have you had any engagement from expats that are currently living over there?
0: Yes. So, um, the, the, and this is sort of a bit of an unknown entity, I suppose, in some senses, but I do know I have a number of connections over in Australia myself, um, through family or friends, and know that there's a number, there's a lot of expats that are interested in going and watching the games as well. Um, so there is a bit of a combination um, piece there in terms of who you support.
1: Well, anyone that's interested in that or knows somebody that might be interested, please either give the Free Lionesses a follow on Twitter yourself, um, or please signpost your sort of friends and colleagues to it because they do fantastic work. And um, we've probably only just scratched the surface of the amount of work that you do, Deb. I said before that you are a role model of mine. You're doing a fantastic work. You are pushing the women's game further by the work that you do directly and the facilitating of other people and engaging of them so you're doing a brilliant job keep it up and thank you
0: thank you very much for having me and thanks for being a member a valuable member of our network
1: well thank you again for taking the time to join us before we do go how can anyone contact you that has um, been interested in what they've heard today
0: Yeah, so you can contact me at deborah.dilworth at thefsa.org.uk. You can um, give me a shout on social media, so on Twitter at SoccerCoachDeb and or contact info at thefsa.org.uk and you'll find your your way through to me. Uh, but, yeah, please reach out, you know, even if, you, if you're just interested in any other questions, you feel like you want to know some more information, you've, uh, you know, we've just released a fantastic booklet today in and around um, crisscrossing over another campaign that the FSA do, which is Fans for Diversity and reaching into the women's game a little bit more. There's funding available. So if you've got an idea, whether you're a Tier 7 football club or whether you're a WSL football club, come and talk to us about projects to sort of reach into and in and around your communities um, and yeah, I like just support the growth in supporter activism in the women's game as, as much as you possibly can
1: Well, thanks again, best wishes with Pilks for the rest of the season and best wishes with uh, trying to see if you can get yourself a ticket over to uh, Australia and New Zealand later in the year, thanks again
0: Thank you marketers advertisers and business owners find yourself chatting up the same audience in the same places using the same old lines maybe it's time to podcast the net further to catch your next customer with Acast, there's plenty of fish in the sea with more than 100,000 podcasts and millions of listeners so there's a perfect match for every business use our ad platform to cast your net then narrow down using targeting such as demographic show categories audience segments and more find your match then reel them in. Advertise on more than 100,000 podcasts with Acast. Head to go.acast.com
1: slash closer to get started.